Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle and it's not rocket science basically do you feel that during the day you're able to function at an optimal level are you able to perform the tasks that you need to perform at a level that you're 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 happy with that's the key area but also i think you can get a suggestion about whether you're sleeping sufficiently by asking well do i do i need an alarm clock to wake me up in the morning or somebody else do i oversleep extensively on free days like the weekend and particularly when i go away on holiday does it take me a long time to wake up do i feel groggy is there lots of sleep inertia do i feel irritable uh, tired and fatigued when i'm awake do i crave a nap during the day do i use caffeinated drinks to drive the wake state throughout the day and do my friends families and colleagues say you're more irritable you're 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 showing loss of empathy and you're doing stupid and unreflective things now if it's no to all of that you're probably getting the sleep that you need welcome to the doctor's kitchen podcast the show about food lifestyle medicine and how to improve your health today I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Why do we sleep? It seems like such a luxury, an evolutionary oversight, a a privilege, some might say. But on today's episode with Professor Russell Foster, you're going to learn about why sleep is having a renaissance in both the way we think about it as a means to health, as well as how the workforce should really embrace it for enhanced creativity and productivity. Russell Foster is Professor of Circadian Neuroscience, Director of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute, SCNI, and Head of the Nuffield Laboratory of Ophthalmology at the University of Oxford. And his latest book, Lifetime, is a fantastic dive into everything circadian clock related, and I absolutely loved reading it. On today's show, you're going to learn all about circadian rhythms, sleep pressure, why we sleep and what happens when we sleep, 
how the visual system interacts with the brain. We're also going to talk about this concept of circadian entrainment, how we can entrain our circadian rhythm to our benefit as well as our physiology's benefit. And we talk about chronotherapeutics, sleep shift work, mental health, how to figure out your chronotype, and Professor Russell's top 10 tips for entraining your clock right at the end as well. It's a brilliant episode. It's a little bit on the longer side, but I thoroughly enjoyed it myself and I know you're going to love it too. Remember, you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free to get access to all of our recipes with specific suggestions tailored to your health needs and new recipes added every month. We're adding about 15 to 20 every single month. All of them have got step-by-step images. You can choose from different health goals. You can also share lists to your friends now as well or share ingredients to your notes that you can go shopping with and we're adding new features all the time. I'm really excited about our latest category of food which is summer celebration so anything that you're celebrating today or in the future and you want to keep it healthy for all your guests summer celebrations is a category with some delicious beautiful salads we also share recipes every single week for free on the newsletter which is eat read listen you can sign up for that at thedoctorskitchen.com but for now here is my conversation with professor russell foster Great. Professor, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, I'm really excited. I'm really to, delighted to join you, Rupert. Oh, brilliant. Fantastic. Brilliant. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to chat to you about this. As you know, sleep is almost having a bit of a renaissance. I think we're all becoming a lot more aware about how important it is to, to make sure that we're getting enough of it. Um, but I wanted to start by, by getting into a bit about your history and how you started studying uh, and sleep and, and, and why this has become sort of your, your, your area of expertise? Well, it goes, it goes back quite some way, actually. I mean, uh, frighteningly to undergraduate years. I was always fascinated with clocks, um, how they're regulated by light. And of course, one of the most obvious of our 24-hour rhythms is the sleep-wake ribbon. Uh, is the sleep-wake uh, 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 rhythm. So in a sense, they all sort of blended t- together. But but in fact, um, if we go right back, you know, to uh, the early years, I was sort of remedial in classes. I used to sort of sit in my own little bubble um, and, and my parents were, you know, absolutely despairing because I remember the headmaster... I was a good swimmer, and I just sort of, you know, captained this sort of swimming team. And the headmaster came, you know, gave me this cup, and he said to my parents, "At the same time, of course, you do realise Russell is an entirely non-academic child." Um, and so, you know, uh, and it was—it's fascinating. I think sort of, and then I—I I sort of fell into this into this this groove of neuroscience, and and loving, you know, all this this, this sort of science, and then realised. Well, perhaps I, if I really want to continue in this way, I ought to sort of pull my finger out and actually pay attention in class. And it was just like a light bulb moment because it went from being, you know, in the bottom of the class in a in a low um, sort of stream to to the top of the top stream. And it's it's weird. Um, however, to answer your question, um, <clears throat> getting into spe- sleep specifically, there there was another pivotal moment. I was um, I was in a lift with a psychiatrist uh, in, in a hospital in West London, where I, I used to work before, um, before Oxford. And this chap said to me, 
oh, you know, um, my patients with schizophrenia, they don't have a job. So they go to bed late, get up late, miss my clinic and don't have friends. And I was really irritated by that. And I thought that just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, And so we teamed up with another psychiatrist and we started to look systematically at the sleep-wake rhythms of these individuals with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And these rhythms were so completely and utterly smashed. You know, there was no 24-hour sort of rhythmicity in some of these individuals. And that really fascinated me. I mean, and so many of the the problems that these individuals were having, you know, cognitive problems, health problems, were probably as a result of the appalling sleep that they were experiencing. And so really, that was the the, the trigger that got me into human research, and indeed, specifically, uh, sleep uh, and the, and the ab- abnormal patterns of sleep in mental illness, which we've, we've continued to work on really for the past Crikey, um, tw- almost twenty years. Mm, mm. It's it, it's so interesting. I mean, um, when you told that story in your book, actually, I, I went to Imperial, so I know Charing Cross Hospital well, and the uh, lifts that are really uh, unreliable as well in that building. Unfortunately, I don't think they've up- they've updated it. It's really a need. <laughs> no. I think I think we had we had, we had a, 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 an external examiner coming in to examine a PhD. I think they were stuck in the lift for about an hour. <laughs> we thought, oh my goodness, they probably you know there's probably some transport issue. No, they were banging on the doors of the lift trying to get out. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Uh, brought back so many memories as a medical student for me. Actually, when you when you told that story, I, I, I think um, why don't we anchor the listener with a couple of definitions because I think circadian rhythm is going to come up quite a bit. Uh, the sleep wake cycle um so maybe we can establish exactly what we mean by those terms and and the definitions and then we can go into how that applies to a a fascinating area of mental well-being um, as well as all the other areas as well that can affect so it's i think it's quite remarkable we have an internal biological day um, often called the body clock uh, and, and also called circadian rhythms. And, and what these circadian rhythms represent is essentially a biological process which, which produces a cycle of around about 24 hours. Now, it's not exactly 24 hours. In fact, circadian rhythm means about 24 hours. And so in addition to this internal representation of a day, we also need to set that day to the external world. And the most important um, factor for setting uh, for aligning the internal and the external day is exposure to the light-dark cycle. So that's the core of our circadian rhythms. We often talk about a sleep-wake cycle. And, and, and of course, that's the most obvious of our 24-hour rhythms. But the sleep-wake cycle is, is more than just the circadian system. The circadian system times a whole bunch of processes within the brain. In fact, the sleep-wake flip-flop from consciousness to, to sleep is extraordinary. It involves a realignment of all the key brain neurotransmitter systems and multiple brain structures all interacting. And this flip-flop between the two states is then timed by the clock, the circadian system, which says now is the appropriate time to be awake, now is the appropriate time to be asleep. But there's yet another timer for the sleep-wake cycle, which is probably the most intuitive part about sleep, which is called the homeostatic drive or sleep pressure. And what that represents is essentially the longer you've been awake, the greater the build-up of sleep pressure and, 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 and the greater the need for sleep. 
so what happens is that first thing in the morning, the clock has, has woken you up, ideally, your, your, your biological clock, not your alarm clock, um, and, and sleep pressure builds throughout the day. And it's really high towards sleep. And we don't fall asleep because the clock is saying, no, it's daytime, keep awake, keep awake, keep awake. And in fact, the highest drive from the clock for wakefulness is just before we fall asleep because it's counteracting that buildup of sleep pressure throughout the day. So we have these wonderful timers all interacting to flip-flop us between uh, consciousness and the sleep state. Mm. So we have this this rough 24-hour cycle um, that that uh, we operate on. We have sleep pressure. I think that's a really important um, uh, concept as well for people to understand as it builds throughout the whole day and, and, in, and uh, affects our, our uh, rhythm. How do we entrain this uh, rhythm such that it's uh, consistent and actually in line with how we should be um, working with uh, the, the day and night cycles? Well, of course, Rupi, that's one of my favorite questions because that's where I've spent a lot of my, my time researching. And, and in fact, you know, we, we knew that, that in, in humans and in fact all mammals, the eye is critical for detecting the dawn-dusk cycle to set the internal clock. It always puzzled me because if you think about the visual system, what the visual system does is grab light in a fraction of a second and then forget it's seen it. So we're talking about light sensing in the millisecond, the sub-second range. But the clock doesn't need information like that. It needs a sort of a global measure of light intensity around about dawn and dusk. And I couldn't work out how the classical visual system was grabbing light to regulate internal time. So we started working on mice with hereditary retinal disorders. They had gene defects, which had rendered their rods and cones, the visual cells within the eye, it had just effectively turned them off. And in fact, these are really interesting animal models because they were being used at the time to understand the genetics of human eye disease. Mm. So these animals existed and we put them into little running wheels and we hooked up the running wheels to a computer and we just measured their rest activity cycles. And what was truly remarkable, and I I still get a tingle when I think about these these early observations, is that these mice were visually blind. They they simply showed no visual response at all, and yet they regulated their their clock, their circadian system, to the light-dark cycle perfectly. They 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 showed that they could not only entrain but they did so with the same sensitivity as a mouse with all of its rods and cones. And I remember when I first, first presented these, these data, actually at a vision, vision meeting, I said, so the data are, are consistent with the fact that there's another light sensor within the eye. And the consternation uh, in response to this heresy was extraordinary. I mean, one talk I gave uh, and, and a chap stood up at the at the back of the auditorium and I thought he was sort of interrupting to ask a question. So I sort of, I sort of paused and he just looked at me and shouted bullshit and, wa- and walked out. Um, and another person I remember was absolutely infuriated. They said, do you think after 150 years of research on the eye, all of us here have missed it in a completely new photoreceptor system? Of course, I was quite young in my career and quite bullish. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but yes, you have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but, but, but as, you know, 
it's never black and white. Um, and, and so th- there was there was a, a grain of, of 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 truth in the criticism, which was okay. There could be just a few visual cells, rods and cones, left within the eye, regulating these uh, the circadian system. And so what we then did was genetically engineer a mouse where all the rods and all the cones had been absolutely turned off. There was no way that they could signal at all. And those mice were just like the other mice. They showed perfectly normal circadian entrainment to the light-dark cycle. And that then led to the realization that there's another light-sensing cell. And in fact, it's based upon the ganglion cells within the retina. Now, the ganglion cells are, are wonderful because they have their axons, and those axons form the optic nerve. They're, they're the last layer in the retina, and they, they project uh, off into the brain. And what, what we were able to show in the mouse, um, working closely with my, my colleague Mark Hankins, um, and David Burson was able to show in the rat, is that a small number of these ganglion cells are directly light sensitive. They, they, they are photosensitive retinal ganglion cells using a completely new light sensing molecule or photopigment that uh, we showed that was maximally sensitive in the blue part of the spectrum. So it's a great example where really completely curiosity driven uh, research has resulted in an extraordinary finding. And in fact, it, it's, it's changed our view of the eye. We now appreciate that the eye is is an organ of, of of space. It gives us our sense of space through vision, but it's also an organ of time because of its ability to regulate the internal clock. And indeed, it's it's to some extent redefining our understanding of blindness. You can be visually blind because you've lost your, let's say, visual cells, your rods and cones, but you can still be um, able to regulate the clock by light because you've got those photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. And so, yes, it's been uh, really exciting. And in fact, what we're up to at the moment um, uh, with, with my colleagues is trying to understand how those novel photosensitive retinal ganglion cells actually interact with the molecular clockwork. And we, we've, we've produced actually some quite exciting stuff over the past uh, couple of years. And I've got, as, as all, when you talk to other scientists, they say, oh, my best paper's just around the corner. You know, we're actually working on this, 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 new, this new paper, which we hope to submit uh, fairly shortly. And, and by understanding those pathways in, what we can also do is think about drugs that will interact with key nodes in that pathway that will then fool the clock that it's seen light. So I work very closely with Blind Veterans UK, these extraordinary individuals who, as a result of um, trauma, uh, have lost their eyes um, in combat. um, And so they have no eyes. And so they drift through time completely. And uh, the work that we're doing on mice um, and now in, in early stage human trials, we think we'll be able to give back a sense of time to these individuals uh, because we will fool their biological clock that it's seen light. And, and I think that's so cool. If I can finish my career by giving back a sense of time to those individuals, and in fact, it relates to, to a bigger population because rhythms, sleep-wake rhythms are smashed in mental illness, neurodevelopmental diseases, and other conditions um, really, which are, are, are very, very difficult. I mean, some childhood illnesses, for example, where there's no sense of time. And so there's a thought that perhaps we can, we can use these drugs, which are originally being developed for the blind, but in other clinical cases as well, whereby we can um, uh, consolidate sleep-wake and then uh, maybe just short-term use of these drugs and then move on to light and, and, and other agents. So, yeah, it's a really exciting time because we're developing 
new drugs to help individuals. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I, I not to derail our conversation, but I did want to ask you about that incident uh, where you had a number of probably senior colleagues standing up and actually sort of publicly shaming you in front of everyone at this conference. I mean, how did you get over that sort of public shaming and that, you know, the, the fact that you were going against what a lot of people believed in that there was a, another photoreceptor that somehow everyone had, had overseen. Yeah. And I think this does ha- happen, you know, quite a bit in, in science when there's sort of a, a, a change in, in the mindset. And what you've got to do is just generate better and better data. In fact, those public challenges, whilst they're they're emotionally difficult to deal with. What they do is they stimulate you to do better experiments and to just genuinely nail it. And that's what we did. It took us 10 years from the sort of original idea to absolutely showing there was something else. And, 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 and you just keep on the expression I used to my, to my, um, uh, wonderful younger colleagues is you just keep on kicking the door until they bloody well let you in, <laughs> um, and and that's that's the approach. I mean, I do remember having some anxious moments. Um, I do remember I gave a seminar in in Germany, um, and one of the very distinguished vision people stood up and basically harangued me. Um, and uh, it was still early days where you know there was this possibility. But but my my first degree actually wasn't in vision science. It, it wasn't in medicine. It was actually zoology. And so I've always had this sort of comparative interest in, in how evolution solves similar problems. And what we had in our back pocket was the discovery that in fish, there is a non-rod, non-cone photoreceptor. We discovered a completely new gene and a new photoreceptor within the eye of fish, completely different from the rods and cones. I remember thinking, oh my God, could we have got it wrong? Have I missed something? And I remember thinking, no, we've got proof of principle. We found it in a fish. Okay, a fish isn't a mammal, but you know, it's not such a daft hypothesis. So, so to answer your, your question, yeah, just get more and more data to to to, to deal with the critics. Yeah, yeah. But it can be painful. I can, I can I imagine. Yeah, yeah. No, Sickness nights. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's good. That's good to know. And I think you know, any budding scientists listening to this, I think that will be really inspirational for them too. I, I want to talk about so just just to go back i mean i think that what what happened is this is, is this this happened sort of fairly early on in my career and i remember sending a grant off to the eye institute um and in those days because i was based in the states for these these early early studies and um it came back and the grant was utterly rejected it was just awful and i remember sitting at my desk thinking oh god you know um and my head of department you know uh, called me and I thought, well, I'm just about to get a roasting. And he was wonderful, Mike Menneker, uh, who sadly died last year. And he said to me, look, you're right. This is wonderful stuff. You know, stick with it. And so he said, just send the grant to another section. So instead of going to the I Institute, I sent it to the Institutes of Mental Health, um, uh, w- which looked at biological questions broadly. And six months later or so, I got this call from the head of the section saying, oh, congratulations, Dr. Foster. Um, your, your study has, your grant has come top of the study section. And we like it so much, we'd like to get permission from you to, to bind it up and, and exhibit it at the Society for Neuroscience, which is the, you know, the, the big thing, as, as an example of how you should write a research grant. And that was so useful because it went from the outer darkness to the highest it could get um, with the same day. I barely changed 
changed the world. <laughs> and so it's that business of sticking to it and getting the, as long as the data are right and they support the the hypothesis, you just plow on. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Good good learning early in my absolutely, career. Absolutely, yeah. And no, that's a really good example of backing yourself as well. That's brilliant. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask about, okay, so now now we have this idea of uh, the visual system being very important in training uh, the sleep-wake cycle. Um, how does this interact with the uh, quote-unquote master clock? And how does that filter down into all the other uh, elements, that the, the, the organs, our pancreas, our digestive system, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I thought we would focus on the master clock um, uh, first. <clears throat> So we actually have a, a physical structure deep within the brain, within the hypothalamus, that represents a master clock. It's called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. It's a paired structure either side of where the optic nerves go into the brain and fuse. And so it sits right at the base of the brain. And there were rumbles <clears throat> that this bit of the brain was very important in circadian organization. Studies going back to the, the 20s and 30s identified something within the base of the brain, because when that part of the brain was destroyed, these 24-hour activity patterns that rats and mice were showing were lost. So there was some stuff going down there. Um, I was involved actually with some experiments with Martin Ralph um, in University of Virginia and Mike Menneker, but Martin led these experiments showing that you could actually destroy that little bit of the brain in a mouse. Um, well, actually, it wasn't a mouse. It was a hamster. Um, and I can tell you why it was a hamster later on. But anyway, it was this hamster. And then transplant in um, an SCN from another hamster. But, but it was a mutant hamster. So instead of having a clock of about 24 hours, it had a clock of about 20 hours. And what was truly remarkable is that that mutant SCN actually restored rhythms to the host where the SCN had been lesioned, uh, but with a period of 20 hours. And that was just so cool because, you know, here we have, uh, a tr you've transplanted an essential element of the clock, which is its period. And so... Uh, further work went on, and it was discovered by other groups that you could take one of those individual clock cells out, and there's about 50,000 in a human SCN, and it would tick away in a dish. It would show 24-hour oscillations, and, and that was immensely exciting. Um, and then it, it became clear how that, that clock was actually generated. Now, it wasn't originally shown in mammals at all. It was shown in the fruit fly. And in fact, in 2017, I was lucky enough to see my, my colleagues, um, Ross Bash, Hall and Young, get the Nobel Prize for discovering how the clock tick, ticked in, in fruit flies. And, and of course, in essence, what you've got is a bunch of clock genes, which encode proteins. Those proteins then form a complex, which move into the nucleus and turn off their own genes. That complex then gets degraded. The genes can then turn on again. So you've got this extraordinary feedback loop, a molecular feedback loop. Um, and so more recently, it's been shown that, that subtle changes in some of those clock genes can either speed up the clock or slow the clock down. And so part of whether you're a morning person or an evening person or somebody in the middle is actually due to how fast your clock runs, which is in turn related to subtle changes in some of those genes um, that are part of the molecular clockwork. Okay, so we have this master clock within the brain, these molecular clocks ticking away. 
It's regulated by the eye and the light-dark cycle. And what we thought was that the SCN then imposed 24-hour rhythms on activity, whether it was the the hormonal systems, whether it was the digestive enzymes, whether it was liver function, muscle function. We just assumed it was a a signal from the master clock imposing these rhythms. And then Uli Schibler um, did some amazing experiments. And I was, I was in the audience when, when these data were first, uh, first presented. And he showed that other cells in the body had clocks. And they were ticking in a way that was just like those clocks within the SCN. And from that early observation, it became clear that essentially every cell in the body has the capacity to generate its own 24-hour molecular oscillation. And so our concept of the circadian system changed almost overnight from an SCN forcing rhythmicity on the rest of the body to a system more like, more akin to an orchestra, where you have the conductor of the orchestra, the SCN, producing a rhythmic temporal beat from which the members of the orchestra, the cells in the body, take a reference cue and align their rhythmicity um, uh, in alignment with with the master clock, so so we've moved from saying the circadian system uh, to to this sort of circadian network, uh, which is what's generating our twenty four hour biology, including of course the sleep wake cycle. So it's it's been it's been a really exciting time, and and I do feel that this this sort of work is one of the great achievements in 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 biology. I mean, to simply understand how genes and their protein products can interact to generate complex behavior and contribute to so much of of our embedded biology, I think is an extraordinary achievement. And I think, you know, uh, Ross Bash Hall and Young deserved their their Nobel Prize, um, absolutely, for getting this sorted out, not in us, of course, but in in flies, but that then informed uh, 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 how the molecular clock is working across the animal kingdom. I mean, what's also extraordinary is that the way that a fly generates its circadian rhythm, its genes and those proteins are broadly similar similar to the sorts of things ticking away in you and I. So the whole of the animal lineage is is ticking away using genes and proteins which are broadly similar. And it's what's fascinating, of course, is that the different groups, the plants, for example, um, the bacteria, they also have clocks, but they're built slightly differently. So it's likely that circadian rhythms have evolved more than once using different sorts of symptoms. They all are based upon a feedback loop, but they're using different genes and different proteins to, to achieve that oscillation. Yeah, that, that, that point actually leads me nicely on to the more broader question about why we sleep. I mean, I, I, to echo your point, I think if you think about the ramifications of sleep uh, more generally, Absolutely, that Nobel Prize was really well deserved because we have a deeper understanding about how it affects everything from mental health, hormonal health, uh, digestive health, uh, metabolic health, obesity, all the things that I do want to talk to you about in a, in a minute. But when it comes to just how uh, deeply ingrained sleep, uh, sleep's importance is to organisms from across the lineage of different animals, I mean, it is pretty incredible that we do sleep considering I know we don't think about it now as a, 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 a of it as a useless activity, but certainly it's not um, very convenient, is it? Considering the, our, our previous environment, where we would have had to fight off predators, and it would have been a very hostile place to live. 
Okay, well, there's a story here. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I wrote a paper, which is essentially, you know, why we sleep. Um, and in fact, I rather provocatively uh, entitled it, There is No Mystery to Sleep. Um, and what I what I'm going about to tell you is my my theory of how has, of of why we sleep, um, and it isn't universally accepted. Although there is creeping acceptance to it, um, which is quite pleasing. So, the first the first question goes back to circadian rhythms. Why has almost all life on the planet evolved a pattern of activity and rest, whether it's a bacteria, whether it's a, an amoeba, whether it's, I don't know, an acarpi, um, anything. It's got this activity of, of, of activity and rest. Um, so to no animal, no organism spans the light-dark cycle equally effectively. What it's done is evolve specializations that allow it to function optimally either at night during the day, or sometimes during that transition period. You think about it, um, animals that are exquisitely adapted to the nighttime fail rather miserably. They usually become somebody's lunch if they're active during the daytime, and vice versa. So once you've made the evolutionary decision to be either day active or night active, you then have to do, you have then have to decide, well, what are you going to do <clears throat> with those two temporal periods? And my view is that essentially what evolution has done is allocate key aspects of our biology to the appropriate phase of the rest activity cycle. So, so for us, for example, if we've accumulated all this massive information during the day, we then, when we go to sleep, we then uh, 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 start to play with that information. We say, mm, are we going to turn this into memory? Uh, are we going to um, start to problem solve? And in a sense, the brain's then got the capacity. It's not being flooded with new information. It can say, okay, how can I deal with the information I've acquired during the day? In the same way, when we're active, we're building up a mass of toxins, um, and we don't want to keep on flipping backwards and forwards between you know, generating them, packaging them up, and all the rest of it. We, we store them, and then we package them up efficiently, and we get rid of them at night. And we should come back to the clearance of toxins in the brain uh, later on. So my definition of sleep <laughs> is, is as follows, which is, it's a period of physical inactivity which prevents us moving around an environment to which we're poorly adapted, but during which time we've allocated a whole mass of essential biology. Essentially, we've compartmentalized our biology in time, allocating it to the most efficient part of our rest activity cycle. So there's not one overarching reason for sleep. It's essentially a whole bunch of critical biology that goes on at the most appropriate time. So that's my definition of sleep. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that totally makes sense. I think particularly when, you know, uh, as people will recognize when they read your book or watch your lectures, the important processes that occur during sleep, it's a necessary component of just living. And, and the, you know, like you, you said, we'll, we'll talk about clearing of toxins um, uh, during the, the rest period. Um, are there examples of other organisms or mammals where they have a more efficient sleep 
period because 30, 30 to 35 percent of our life is going to be uh, spent asleep do you do you think we, we could have become a bit more sort of evolved so a bit more efficiency so it's less of a proportion of our 24-hour cycle 24 a day i think there's huge diversity um across uh, across the animal world uh, with durations of sleep and what's going on and i think it's that evolutionary balance you you sleep long enough to do the sorts of things that you need to do in some sense i, I think it's surprising that we don't sleep more because so much of our memory consolidation and information information processing is going on whilst we sleep and we survive because of this extraordinary great structure on the top of our you know it, it, on the top of our head it's worth bearing in mind that 20% of all the calories we consume are are burnt by the energy going on within the brain um, which is three percent of two to three percent of body weight I mean it's just phenomenal and and of course sleep is this amazing defender of uh, of brain function i mean uh and in fact it, it, you could argue that sleep is the best cognitive enhancer that we've got uh, certainly better than any drugs we might want to take um and so uh, i i think that the the period of sleep that, that animals and we um uh, experience is what's needed to underpin our biology but there are some very interesting issues about what goes on um, during sleep. So, so a part of the reason for writing Lifetime, I have to say, was because I was somewhat irritated with the sergeant majors of sleep screaming, you must get eight hours, you must do this, and you must do that. And I thought, this is nonsense. I mean, if we think about sleep, it's, it's a dynamic, very, very different bit of biology not only between individuals, but also as we age. So, for example, uh, sleep duration. If we look at the healthy range of sleep in adults, it's somewhere between six hours and it may be up to 10 hours. And the average, of course, is seven or eight hours. But by telling people they must get seven or eight hours of sleep, it can then generate enormous anxiety. I remember before lockdown, a chap came up to me and said, um, I'm not getting um, eight hours of sleep. Am I going to die? And I said, well, you, you know, I can guarantee that you're going to die, but it's not necessarily because you're not getting eight hours of sleep. And so I think we've, 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 it's wonderful that we're all much more aware of the, of the importance of sleep, but it's also bred a certain level of anxiety. And one of the points of the book is to arm individuals with the science and a whole bunch of sort of um, suggestions that they can adopt or not to, to get the sleep that they would require. And, and I think that the key thing is that we all have to ask ourselves, well, how much sleep do I need? Am I getting the right sort of sleep? And it's not rocket science. Basically, do you feel that during the day you're able to function at an optimal level? Are you able to perform the tasks that you need to perform at a level that you're, you're, you're happy with? That's the key area. But also, I think you can get a suggestion about whether you're sleeping sufficiently uh, by asking, well, do I, do I need an alarm clock to wake me up in the morning or somebody else? Um, do I oversleep extensively on free days, like the weekend and particularly when I go away on holiday? Uh, does it take me a long time to wake up? Do I feel groggy? Is there, is there lots of sleep inertia? Um, do I feel irritable, uh, tired and fatigued when I'm awake? Um, do I crave a nap during the day? Do I use um, caffeinated drinks to drive the wake state throughout the day? 
And do my friends, families, and colleagues say you're more irritable? You're 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 showing loss of empathy, and you're doing stupid and unreflective things. Now, if it's no to all of that, you're probably getting the sleep that you need. And so, I think we should flip it around, and we should say, well, what's my daytime function like? And if it's okay, I'm probably getting the sleep that I need. Another real myth that really irritates me is this this concept of the eight hour uninterrupted block of sleep. Now, there's studies. Um, which I think are absolutely fascinating, records from the pre-industrial era showing what human sleep patterns are like. And so there was a sort of a two-hour winding down, then sleep may then wake up for a short period of time, interact with others, go back to sleep, and then have a, a, a slow transition out. You see that in societies today without electric light. And in fact, if you or I were taken into the lab, given, hours, given 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness, again, we would flip into a pattern where we would have one or two wake episodes I- in the middle of the night. And, and this is called biphasic sleep, two episodes of, of sleep separated by wake, or indeed polyphasic sleep, which is uh, um, sleep separated by several wake-ups. And that's probably the natural state and people don't know that and so if you wake up in the middle of the night you think oh my god that's it i'm never going to get back to sleep i'm not getting my you know eight hours of uninterrupted sleep which is what the sergeant majors are screaming at me um get stressed start drinking coffee start doing emails without staying calm thinking this is probably a normal pattern of my biology i can stay here if i'm feeling tired i'll flop back to sleep or i'll go to another room uh, keep the lights low listen to a piece of relaxing music or a few pages of a of a favorite novel feeling tired then go back to bed and so i think this is this is you know really important that we appreciate that sleep is very changeable very dynamic between individuals and as we age yeah, I think the dynamism of sleep is something that's really important to emphasize because you're right, I, I certainly have come across a lot of people who have become quite anxious the more they learn about sleep. And to draw an analogy, I think it's similar to you know people who don't feel like they're eating enough fruits and vegetables or they're eating too much junk food and they get anxious every time they hear or see something that associates junk food consumption with early deaths or dementia, et cetera, et cetera, or sugar consumption. So I, I think there's definitely a fine balance to, to strike that and um it's very interesting you, you note that in some of these um uh details of uh pre-industrial times or even some novels where they they mention first sleep and second sleep uh and i, I was that was a revelation to me i thought i thought it was super interesting i, I hadn't come across that before yeah I, I love that um and i talk about it in the book that, that um french um medic um who talked about um uh, uh, the best time to have sex um, is after your first sleep, <laughs> yeah. when you'll not only enjoy it more, be better at it. And I, you know, I just I couldn't resist putting that one in the book. <laughs> yeah, that was brilliant. <laughs> and, and you mentioned um, uh, different people are, are, are better at um, you know, getting up at different times. And I, and I wanted to ask you about chronotypes and, and how you can tell if there are practical ways in the same way you've just laid out how you can practically tell whether you're sleeping enough. Just a note on that. I think most people listening to this will probably have answered to at least one or two of those things that you mentioned in the list of uh, attributes of, for, for people who aren't getting enough sleep. But the, with, the, with the chronotypes, how, how, how can you tell whether uh, practically you are a morning lark or a, a night owl? So, so about ten percent of the uh, population would be uh, early types, larks. About sixty-five of us are sort of intermediate types, often called doves. 
uh, I, I mentioned this the other day, and I called them pigeons. I don't know why I called them <laughs> anyway, it's doves. Um, and and the, and the last group are the the late types, which which are the owls, and that's about twenty five percent of the population. So there's a sort of a skewing to more later types, but it's broadly speaking a, a, a bell shaped curve. <clears throat> and so what's generating our chronotype? And there's three essential factors. One is our genes. Um, so we, we touched on this slightly earlier when we talked about the clock. Um, subtle changes in the molecular clockwork can, can, are, are associated with morningness versus eveningness. Uh, so by their contribution to our genes, I guess, our parents are still telling us what time to get up and go to bed. Um, the second is, is, I think, really interesting, and it depends upon our age. So from about the age of 10, we start to go to bed or want to go to bed later and later and later. And that peaks in males in their early 20s, 21 or so. It peaks in in women at about 19, 19 and a half. And males tend to want to go to bed later for longer. But from our early 20s, then there's a move to want to go to bed earlier and earlier and earlier. And by the time we're in our late 50s, early 60s, we're wanting to get up and go to bed at about the time we got up and went to bed uh, 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 pre-puberty around about 10. And the difference is uh, around about two hours. So somebody in their late teens, early 20s will want to go to bed on average two hours later than somebody in their late 50s and early 60s. So it's, it's, a, it's a big effect. What's driving it? Well, it's almost certainly the changes in the, the hormones associated with puberty uh, and then their change in concentration as we, as we move into old age. So testosterone and estrogen. And we know from animal studies that these hormones can shift the biological, the rest activity cycles of, 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 of mice, for example. In fact, the early work was all done in mice. So, so the first is genetics. The second is our development. But the third, which is, I think, so cool, and it's, and it's basically ignored most of the time, it's when we get exposure to light. So we, we, we said it was really important to get light to set the clock, but light has a different effect at different times. Dusk light delays the clock, means you want to go to bed later and get up later. Morning light advances the clock, means you want to go to bed earlier and get up earlier. Now, normally, you know, when we're all agricultural workers, we got symmetrical exposure to both delaying dusk, advancing morning light. But that isn't always the case now. And so teenagers, for example, at the weekend will invariably oversleep uh, in the morning, not get the morning light, which would advance the clock, make them get up earlier, but they will be out later in the day in the evening um, uh, towards dusk, and they get dusk light, which will delay the clock. And we did a study a few years ago showing that those delayed chronotypes were the ones that were getting the most evening light. So three things, genetics, how old you are, and your steroidal, your sex steroidal milieu, um, and also if you're getting morning versus evening light. And, and actually, it's, it's, it's very interesting because, of course, it gives us some power over our chronotype. So if you need to be awake earlier in the day, then what you can do is set the alarm clock, um, get up, get outside, preferably to get bright natural light. Uh, but if, you, if it's winter, for example, you can sit in front of a light box, 30 minutes, 10,000 lux will advance the clock. 
So it's something that we have a bit of ownership over, um, and it's worth bearing in mind. But that's that's in essence what defines our chronotype. Absolutely, and I think you're settling a lot of um, heated debates between parents and teenagers in recognizing or helping them recognize that they uh, they will have shifting chronotypes throughout their their uh, period of life as well. And I wonder if you if you've thought about how we can actually create an educational system that is in line with our circadian rhythms, particularly for for children of that very uh, important developmental step. I mean, in the UK, we have our GCSEs, and I'm sure there's the equivalent in, in different countries like US and Australia, um, where, where a lot of the listeners are. So yeah, I, I wonder if there, there are any thoughts around that. Well, yes, absolutely. And I think the issue of the the teenage chronotype needs to be taken seriously. Um, and there's two approaches that have been adopted. Let me tell you what's been going on in the States primarily first, and then we can think about the UK system. So the school day in the States starts really early. Some classes can even start at seven o'clock in the morning. So some young individuals are getting up really early to get the bus to uh, get the uh, get get to class in time. And so <clears throat> there's much earlier start times in the States. And Mary uh, Cuskerden, for example, has been a massive advocate in a later start time. And when that's been adopted, and <clears throat> it's worth bearing in mind that what they're saying in the States is no class should start before 8.30 in the morning. We'll come back to that within the UK context in a moment. And when they've shifted from this, this sort of earlier start to a later start at 8.30, Self-harm has gone down, truantism has gone down, and educational attainment has gone up. So it's definitely having an effect. What about the UK? Well, it's difficult to extrapolate to the UK because our start times, our school start times are 10 to 9, 9 o'clock. So we're already getting up later than those young people in the States and in places like Germany, for example, and, and, and indeed Singapore. So what we thought is, okay, let's, let's survey the levels of insomnia uh, across a group of teenagers. And if you take the average, and this is a great example of where averages can be deeply misleading, the average is perfectly normal sleep. You think, you know, what's all this hoo-ha about, you know, young people struggling with, with, with sleep? But, but that's an average, again, is a really bad idea. What you've got to do is look at the spread. And what we found is that about 20 to 25% of that group were showing levels of insomnia that were bordering on, on clinical problems. And so then, with that knowledge, we worked with the teachers and developed educational materials so that the teachers could teach their young you know, students the importance of sleep, why you need to get morning light exposure, why you need to keep a constant routine, all this sort of stuff. And what was truly extraordinary is that of that 20, 25% that were showing high levels of insomnia, we were able to, just by education alone, reduce the severity of the insomnia. We didn't get rid of it completely, but at least we moved it, uh, a, a significant number of those, those young people, out of the clinical range of insomnia. And I should say, 
We also coupled those educational materials with uh, pamphlets to the parents. So the, the parents also were being informed about the importance of sleep and why it's, worth why it's worth defending. So you have a couple of options. You can either delay the start time or you can introduce educational materials. My view at the moment, based upon our preliminary data, is I wouldn't be a strong advocate for a delayed start time, but I would suggest that we embed sleep education within the national curriculum. I think it's absolutely madness that 30% of our biology is entirely ignored throughout the whole educational experience. And we've shown that it can, it can work. And uh, one of my deep frustrations is why we were not then funded to go on to you know, improve these approaches and embed it within the school curriculum. Because we're not only going to allow our young people to um, have better educational experiences, um, but it's information they'll carry with them for the rest of their, their lives. And they will know about defending their sleep uh, and, and the importance of sleep. Because after all, um, you know, we need education not only with our young people, but now um, within the business sector. You know, the assumption is that... Um, uh, night shift workers shift their clocks to the demands of working at night. They don't. And there's stuff we need to address there. Within our police force, our frontline services, you know, there's still the very much the sort of almost machismo. No, it's sort of a rite of passage. Passage. You see it in, in the medical profession as well. Um, Rupi, you might like to want to talk about it. You know, oh, well, it was good enough for me. You know, it's good enough for them. And And it's part of the fact, I think, that we as a society, up until fairly recently, have ignored the importance of sleep uh, and it's been it's been marginalized it's almost been thought of as an illness that needs a cure um so mm, i'm a yeah, passionate yeah. advocate for sleep education particularly in this country absolutely absolutely yeah yeah no, no that, that that makes so much sense and i think um it certainly needs to be part of not just the the national curricula but definitely a larger part of the medical curricula as well i mean I, I i don't remember getting too much education on this when i was at medical school and to answer your point about the machismo and the bravado around doing night shift work i think certainly when i qualified um over 13 years ago now and started doing night shift work um I remember vividly having a conversation with a number of my colleagues in the in the doctor's mess about different strategies to keep ourselves awake when driving home the next day. I mean, it's, it horrifies me to think about the number of times I've experienced micro sleeps after doing a night shift and driving home because there was just no other way of getting home and there were no allowances for sleeps uh, or like, you know, having a nap after the night shift and then going home at the hospital. And I, that's very much the case still today. I think, I think it's deeply irresponsible. I, I, I talk about it in the book that there was a survey uh, undertaken in junior doctors finishing the night shift and 57% uh, reported either having a crash or a near miss on the way home. And that's just not good enough. Interestingly enough, uh, I used to visit um, University of Western Australia a lot and, and the Perth hospitals there, they actually provide taxis for their junior doctors after the night shift, um, which, is, which is very enlightened. However, I think this is a really good example. There are things we're not going to get, we're, we're not going to get rid of the 24-7 society or night shift work. It's here to stay. But what we can do 
is mitigate some of the problems. So let's just start with that loss of vigilance on the journey home. Then uh, employers should either provide apps or subsidize the purchase of apps, which can be clipped onto the dashboard, which can measure head nod or or movement of, of the car and alert individuals that they're falling asleep at the wheel. And, and, you know, and of course, in high-end German cars, that's now standard technology. Uh, we also know that in night shift workers, uh, particularly long-term night shift workers, cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes 2, um, and indeed even cancer, show a higher frequency. So why don't we have higher frequency health checks for those individuals who are vulnerable to catch these conditions before they become chronic? I think you know, that's, that's a, a, a something that we could institute immediately. Even more important, perhaps, and I think this is all part of the duty of care, is that w- what's available in terms of food uh, during the night shift. It's fast food, it's high fat, it's high sugar, and why nobody has developed a uh, easy-to-digest, protein-rich, tasty morsel. I, I think it's a, an opportunity for the great British Bake Off to develop um, uh, food for night shift workers um, could, that, that could then be instituted to reduce the chances of obesity, diabetes 2, and all of these, these other problems. In some sectors, the divorce rate is six times higher in night shift workers to day, compared to day shift workers. And so why aren't we providing the education not only to the individuals saying, look, you know, you're going to be more impulsive, you're going to be, you know, um, <clears throat> less able to process information, you're going to be less empathetic, but also information to the people they live with. So they realize that the person that they um, sort of shacked up with and this wonderful, glorious person hasn't turned into a monster. Well, they have turned into a monster in a sense, but it's not their fault and they need to be cut some slack. So I think there's a I think there is an absolute duty of care um, that many sectors of society, many employers need to implement to mitigate some of the problems associated with. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, mean, I've been asked multiple, multiple times to do a doctor's kitchen uh, version sort of cafe for uh, workers in the hospital. And we are working on a few concepts there as well that are optimizing uh, and, and trying to mitigate against any issues. I mean, you just need to look at the population of medical staff and actually look at the propensity towards type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all the things that you've just rattled off there. And in part, that's definitely due to um, shift workers because we're all shift workers, essentially. Um, uh, I, I wanted to, actually, before we go into that, because we were mentioning teenagers, I want to talk a little bit about social media, actually, and this idea that it, the reason why teenagers are waking up latest potentially because of the use of their mobile phones at, at night. Now, I know you've got some some views on this that it might not be necessarily due to the light, but more so due to the content. Um, and, and perhaps we could talk about the spectrum of light as well that we have indoors versus outdoors. It, it's, it's really important because there are, in, embedded in the media is the concept that blue light at night um, from computer screens and Kindles and all the rest of it is delaying the circadian clock. Remember, nighttime light delays the clock. Um, <clears throat> the evidence for that is uh, uh, scant at best. A classic study that was undertaken by a group at Harvard got people to look at a Kindle on its brightest intensity for four hours on five consecutive nights. And after five nights, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a brutal hit. After five nights, with that sort of experience, sleep time was 
just statistically significantly delayed by 10 minutes. And as uh, Mary Kaskaden, you know, I think uh, said at the time, well, it may be statistically significant, but it's biologically meaningless. It's within the wobble. Now, the problem with, dev- oh, and, I, and while we're talking about it, computer screens um, and the shift from sort of a blue enriched to an, sort of a, a red enriched screen. There's very little evidence that that uh, works at all in terms of the circadian system. And, and it really goes back to our understanding of how light interacts with the clock. You need a lot of light of a long duration to actually um, shift the clock. So, for example, um, light treatments use 10,000 lux for 30 minutes. Um, the sorts of light you're getting from a Kindle uh, is going to be 30 lux. Uh, and from a computer screen, it's probably going to be something like maybe 70 lux, 100 lux, if you're, if, if you're lucky. And I remember talking to a, a, a teenager, it's a great story, uh, about um, the use of, of screens at night. And he said, OK, just, just stop right there, because I have a device which shifts the color of my screen from blue to orange, and therefore I'm not going to shift my circadian rhythms. I said, okay, that's great. There's not much evidence that it really works very well. But by the way, what time do you think you're getting off to sleep? And he said, well, about 2.30 a.m. <laughs> so, so, you know, there's this idea that you can actually dodge the bullets with technology, but actually you're not. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think the danger, and where we do have good data with devices, and particularly devices that you're interacting with, they have an alerting effect upon the brain, and they delay sleep onset. Um, and particularly if you're doing multimedia, you know, you're doing your, your emails, you're doing your, 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 your um, WhatsApps, and all the rest of it. It's a highly dynamic, very brain alerting. And, and I think really what you've got to do is turn the devices off um, you know, at least 30 minutes before you want to go to sleep. And you, if you don't have the strength to um, uh, not turn them back on if you wake up, um, leave them in another room. I, I mean, I do know what it's like. I remember when I first got a BlackBerry. I was, I was in Western Australia. And, and those of us that remember this sort of little light that would flash slowly when, when a message. And so I was in Australia. So I deal with the Australian, you know, emails and stuff. And then, of course, the European ones would come in. And then, of course, the American ones would come in. So, you know, it spanned. And I sort of got there. I had jet lag. It was difficult to get to sleep. And uh, I, I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll put the BlackBerry in, in, in the next room. Woke up, wandered into the next room. So I, in the end, I had to leave this damn thing in the lab because I had no control over, over looking at this this thing and so i you know i do i do sp- speak with experience i do know how difficult it is but but actually leaving it in the lab worked you know i'd wake up i'd then fall back to sleep yeah, again. Yeah, yeah definitely so so rather than the uh the light emitted from these devices uh from from what i gather it's more the attention uh or the the alerting effect of the content that you're consuming and the attention switching between different applications and tasks that can be alerting to the brain. Absolutely. And I think, and it will depend upon the device. So for example, a Kindle, you know, we've got the data, which suggests it's not going to delay sleep onset. Um, and a Kindle is, is kind of one dimensional. It's an electronic book. You know, you're not, you're, you're reading um, the, the, sort of a smartphone 
or gaming or something else is very different in that there you're, it's a much more dynamic and complex set of interactions, which is going to be uh, more alerting. So I think it's, it's those electronic devices, which I think one has to be particularly um, uh, careful about uh, in terms of their alerting effects because of, the, of, of what you're doing on the brain and therefore delaying yeah, sleep. Brilliant. Um, and, and on the note, back to shift work, sorry, we're shifting, attention shifting across different topics here ourselves. There's just so much to talk about with you. So shift workers, um, it's not going to go away. It's, uh, it's going to be a, a part of uh, frontline workers' life in, in medicine and in, you know, in supermarkets, lorry drivers, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of things can we do to mitigate the effect, the inevitable disruption uh, that that these entail? I mean, it's a very difficult question, uh, and uh, perhaps we could uh, drill down in some, into some of the processes that are actually disturbed as a result of shift work um, before we provide some solutions. We touched on this within the context of, of um, sort of higher frequency health checks, uh, the appropriate nutrition, uh, education. Um, one idea, which I think is really interesting, and, I, and it sounds a bit crazy, but I think it's worth thinking about. We talked about chronotype. And so wouldn't it be smart to chronotype the workforce and those who were the morning types would do the morning shifts, those that did the late, that were the late chronotypes did the late shifts. What you really want to avoid is somebody like me, who is a late type, doing the morning shift uh, and vice versa. So I think that we can actually use one's chronotype to try and match uh, onto the sorts of shift schedule that you would, you would, you would want to try. And it's not the whole solution, but it will, will mitigate t- to some extent. Uh, so, so I think that, uh, you know, those approaches are, are really important. They're not, going to, they're not going to get rid of the problems, but they will mitigate some of the problems. Uh, and not, not least the educational component. I think that the various sectors, you know, warning, you know, that, that knowledge, you know, for junior doctors, for example, that 57% have either had a crash or a near miss on the drive home. So what what can you how can you deal with that information? And as you said, you know, looking at devices which detect drowsiness uh, uh, and alert you to the fact that you're falling asleep at the wheel. And and these microsleeps that you mentioned, Rupi, they're uncontrollable. Uh, you can you know you're, you're going along, you think you're okay, and then you just fall asleep uncontrollably. And and of course that's why they're so dangerous because you've lost any consciousness. And so you can't even put the brake on when you're plowing into the car in front of you or to the into, into the middle of the road, because you, you, you've lost consciousness. And that's why they're so very dangerous in terms of, of, of um, causing uh, severe um, uh, uh, trauma and indeed death. Mm, yeah. And, and so with, um, with sleep disruption, you have uh, poor immune health, higher cortisol levels, uh, greater risks of cardiovascular disease, et cetera. One of the elements, uh, one of the things that I think is getting a bit more attention these days is um, the impact on mental health. Um, So I wonder if we can do a bit of a dive into how sleep disruption can uh, relate to mental health in either an associative role or or in a potentially causative manner. Yeah, I think the relationship between sleep and circadian rhythm disruption and mental health is very, very important. And, you know, I mentioned those studies right at the beginning that I did on, uh, with colleagues on schizophrenia. And I was just completely gobsmacked at the, at the appalling sleep-wake problems. And of course, 
the longevity of people with severe mental illness is much reduced. And what do they have? They have obesity, diabetes 2, cognitive problems. And these are all the sorts of things that you get as a result of of chronic sleep disruption. And it's it's never thought about as a treatment option. Um, you know, the poor sleep. It's thought of as, well, um, an unavoidable consequence of antipsychotics, for example, or lack of employment. And I've, and again, I think this is not the right way to think about it. And so we sort of developed a, a sort of a conceptual model, you know, because everybody said, well, is it chicken and egg? You know, is it is the, is the sleep problem, you know, causing the mental health and the mental health? It, it's It's actually, you shouldn't look at it in that way. What we um, because of our increased understanding of how the sleep and circadian systems are generated, they involve all those key brain neurotransmitter systems, multiple brain structures. So the hypothesis is that the, the heart of the problem is an overlap between the brain circuits, the neurotransmitter systems that are regulating mental health and those that are re- regulating normal sleep-wake. And if there's a change in a neurotransmitter pathway that predisposes you to mental illness, let's say serotonin, let's say dopamine, whatever, it's going to have an impact upon the sleep-wake system at some level. And what evidence do we have for that? Well, it's been so interesting because genes that have been linked to human schizophrenia, for example, SNAP25, we, we, we looked at a mouse with a mutation in SNAP25, um, which shows sort of odd it, it's, mice can't have schizophrenia, but it shows some patterns of behavior which, which you can associate with schizophrenia. But what's its sleep-wake like? Well, it's smashed, completely smashed, just like the patients. And increasingly, we're finding genes which have been originally associated with a clock, which are now being linked to mental health issues and mental health um, genes, which are now been shown to have a role in the circadian and the sleep system. So there is that mechanistic overlap at the beginning. Okay. But it's more than that. Because, of course, the distorting effects of sleep and circadian rhythm disruption on our physiology uh, and our and our and our cognitive behaviors and our emotional pathways will exacerbate the mental health condition. And of course, the mental health condition will then feed back, um, let's say via anxiety, psychosocial stress, maybe even the medications, can feed back and then affect the sleep and circadian rhythm disruption. So you, and of course, you, you have this stuff at the heart, but very rapidly you can, you can, as a result of a positive feedback loop, distort both the worsening sleep situation and the worsening, worsening mental health situation. So that's the conceptual framework um, that, that we came up with. And we thought, okay, well, if that's the case, um, do you see changes in, 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 in sleep-wake prior to a, let's say, depressive episode, and you do. And what about those individuals who are at risk from developing bipolar? So working with Guy Goodwin, um, Guy had developed a a bunch of questionnaires uh, about vulnerability to develop bipolar. And we were able to show that those uh, young people who were at risk of developing bipolar but did not have a clinical diagnosis of bipolar were already showing sleep-wake problems. So again, further evidence for this relationship. Uh, and so anyway, the explicit test was, and this was led by Dan Freeman in psychiatry in Oxford, wonderful set of um, uh, experiments, and using um, a, a, a digital um, 
uh, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, for insomnia program and looked at thousands of individuals. Um, and these individuals are showing insomnia <clears throat> and high levels of paranoia um, and hallucinatory experiences. And what was extraordinary is that by just partially stabilizing the sleep-wake cycle with digital, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, it was able to reduce the levels of paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. And so I think we can think about the, the, the sleep circadian system as a new therapeutic target in mental health. Stabilize that and you'll hopefully reduce the severity of symptoms. And there will be a number of ways, of, of course, the approaches that you could, you could use to stabilize sleep-wake in those groups. But, but I think that's, it's, it's really fascinating. The other thing that I think is so important and I've been talking to a, a tech company about this, is I've long had the idea that because you see a change in sleep-wake prior to a depressive episode or a psychotic episode, you could use a very simple device that would measure when you got up, when you went to bed, um, how many times you woke up in the middle of the night. And if you see a change in that, it signals to your smartphone um, and that then goes to uh, a clinical uh, individual who who says who can then ring up the individual and say, "How's it going? Noticed some changes in your sleep wake. Do you want to come in? Should we should we think about you know? Do you find that your mental health status is, is sliding? Do we need to sort of so you can then uh, very light touch monitor individuals who are vulnerable within the community and try and head off." a mental health crisis by looking at changes in the sleep-wake pattern. And I think that's that's potentially very exciting. We don't have that. Nobody's no. built the device. It's, it's simple. Yeah, technology. it's very... could be done now. And, and I'm, I hope I hope this group will do it finally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what, what is your opinion of sleep tech in general? I mean, you, you probably, I mean, you've definitely come across a number of consumer available tools these days that are... Um, at least claiming to give you uh, certain data on the quality of your sleep, such that you can do things to inform it and improve it. What what what, what is your yeah? Well, what is your opinion of the accuracy of those and the utility? Well, where should we start? <laughs> um, uh, so, so first of all, in principle, um, a device that gives you some feedback about when you went to sleep, how long you've slept, when you get up could be very useful. It's rather like a diet. You know, you you change your eating behavior, you weigh yourself in the morning, you see a weight loss, you think, great, that's fine. I'm doing something right, and it reinforces the behavior. And so they could be useful at that level. Um, the problem about the devices that are currently marketed, and I should say, none are endorsed by any of the um, Sleep Federation, National Sleep Federation, for example, none of them are FDA approved at the moment. They can be very misleading because what they're good at, as I say, is telling you when you went to sleep, when you got up, but but then giving you measures of you had a good deep sleep or you had lots of slow wave sleep or lots of REM sleep. They simply aren't accurate enough to, to report this. And I think it can generate anxiety. And I give you two examples. One young lad came to me and said, do you believe in slow wave sleep? And I said, well, you're kind of. Um, uh, he said, well, I don't because my device is saying I'm not getting any. And I sort of, sort of explained why I thought that um, I, I wouldn't put any trust in the device. But one chap, one chap, seriously, I kid you not, 
again, this is a discussion prior to lockdown. Uh, he came up to me and, and again, he said, I'm really worried I'm not getting enough deep, slow wave sleep. My, my app is telling me I'm just not. In fact, I'm so anxious about it. I wake, I set the alarm for three o'clock in the morning to check how much slow wave sleep my app has recorded. And, and you know, this is just crazy. Uh, and, and so... Um, Take the information with a pinch of salt. Um, good, good, good friend of mine um, uh, from from uh, the states. He teaches a massive class in sleep, and he sort of starts the class by saying, "Who here has used the sleep app ever?" And you know, the whole class puts its sort of hand up, and he said, "Who is now using them today?" And you know, you've got three hands going up. You know, people people get wise quickly that these devices um, uh, are inaccurate and actually can be, under some circumstances, unhelpful, particularly if you take the information too seriously. It's frustrating because they could work. It's, it's a difficult problem, though, because, you know, they're based upon an algorithm trying to extract information. And as we've discussed, um, sleep is highly dynamic and very variable. So you'd have to have a deeply sophisticated algorithm. Maybe AI will get there in the end to try, you know, you plug in age, you plug in a whole bunch of factors, which could then modify the app that would make it more applicable to you. But, but you know, y- you say that these have been scientifically validated. Well, you look at the papers and it was eight undergraduates from California um, with two nights in a sleep lab. That's not validation for me. Um, and so I, I, I know it's a shame because it's this, this extraordinary technology. They could do so much better job and they're doing it half-assed. And that really upsets me. I have used multiple different sleep trackers and I use a sleep tracker. And I think the main takeaways for me are don't look into it too much because it's highly inaccurate. But B, for, for the type of analytical person I am and for someone who doesn't get too carried away with things like calorie counting and you know measuring steps and that kind of stuff, it gives me a rough idea of what um, impacts my sleep, uh, the lateness of my meals, the amount of alcohol, the timing of exercise, all those kind of broad stroke things. But I wouldn't look into it to the point of measuring the amount of minutes that I've been in REM sleep because I know that's highly inaccurate. And I I can't remember if it's via a lecture or in your book where you talk about EEG's uh, inaccuracy uh, or the, the lack of information you can actually gather from it. And I was quite surprised about that. So I wonder if we could we could talk about that. EEG, of course, has dominated the sleep field from its its origins. And it's worth bearing in mind that the circadian scientists and the sleep scientists didn't go to the same meetings for most of my career. Um, you know, the circadian people were often comparative biologists. They, you know, worked on pigeons and lizards and plants and, you know, just, you know, didn't really work on humans. And we sort of didn't think about sleep that much. And then this other group, primarily based, you know, in the clinical realms would measure, you know, the electrical activities from the surface of the skin covering the the skull and look for change patterns and associate that with um, disease or or whatever. Um, And it's only recently that the sleep people and the clock people have have come together and are talking a similar language. And 
The problem about EEG is that it's it also can be rather misleading. And, and I was speaking to a sleep colleague fairly recently who shall remain nameless because he might get attacked by his colleagues. And he said, yeah. And I said to him, you know, EEG, what's, what's it good for? And he said, yeah, it's a good point. Um, uh, and he said, um, measuring, measuring the EEG to try and work out how the brain works is a bit like looking um, at when the toilets are flushed and when the lights go on off in a building to try and work out what's going on in the building. It's a, a very crude measure. And, and of course, it's tricky because EEG is correlative, you know, um, and, and there's some very interesting correlations. So in, in schizophrenia, for example, you lose slow-wave sleep. You lose deep sleep. What does that mean, though? Well, it's complicated because we don't really know what slow-wave sleep and REM sleep are actually doing. What do they represent at a functional level? So... There's a suggestion, and the data aren't too bad, suggesting that slow-wave sleep is associated with memory consolidation and the processing of information while we sleep. REM sleep could well be emotional processing. But other than that sort of hand-waving, it hasn't taught us a huge amount about the fundamental mechanisms that generate the sleep-wake cycle. Um, and I think it's, to some extent, been a, a distraction. And what we've got now are young, early career, mid-career scientists who are electrophysiologists who are now looking at sleep um, using some of the incredibly sophisticated new tools to get a genuine understanding of what's going on. So is a K-complex actually associated with memory transfer? I mean, they're beginning to sort of delve more deeply. And of course, using drugs can manipulate some of these patterns and see what it, effect it has uh, on the in individual's ability to perform during the day. So yeah, um, I, I think, and of course, EEG is really tricky because the trick, the, the way people have used it is to bring somebody into a sleep lab, wire them up, and then expect normal sleep overnight. And of course, it, it's a deeply abnormal sleep environment. There are some new devices, and, 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 I, and I'm very hopeful about this. And I think this may actually be really useful for the field, whereby you have truly ambulatory EEG with dry electrodes. So you can put a sort of little band around. Um, and those devices look to be, I think, really interesting. They're not only, I think, good for looking at the EEG from the brain when you're asleep, but also the wake state, because the amplitude of some of the oscillations and the frequency that you get during wake can alert you to whether you're tired or you're fully alert. And that, of course, could be very useful within the workplace um, to prevent accidents or indeed, as we've discussed on the drive home. So I think that the new, the new technologies, the new generation of dry electrodes uh, for measuring EEG could actually be, be rather helpful. So you're not then bolted in to all the paraphernalia and the abnormal environment of a sleep mm, clinic. Yeah. And, 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 just speaking about those new tools that won't, no, won't necessarily be commercially available, what are those new tools that sleep researchers and electrophysiologists are, are looking at using or using now other than obviously EEG? Yeah, I mean, there's there's the ambulatory EEG, which is being used in a, in, in a, in a research context. And so you can sort of keep one of these things on all day. 
Um, so you can you can and you can combine it with rest activity measures. You can you can combine it with light levels. I mean, one of the things you know of of of, of light will enhance alertness if it's bright enough. And so in the factory, for example, uh, you can increase levels of light and increase levels of alertness and therefore reduce the chance of, of having an accident. And what you can do is, is change the light in a factory and actually measure the effect it's having on levels of alertness empirically, not just are you feeling more alert or not, a questionnaire, but actually measure it from, the, from these men. So I think, I think they're going to be very useful within um, within a within a real world context for, for for measuring brain activity, for example, in the workplace, I think that will be excellent. In the animal model studies, these sort of electrodes that can be used to measure activity within the brain have become incredibly sophisticated. So you can measure multiple areas of the brain's electrical activity at the same time, and in fact. One of my colleagues, um, Vlad Vyazovsky, uh, who's a brilliant, you know, um, early career, uh, early mid-career, I should probably say now, um, a, a, a sleep scientist, was one of the group that showed that actually, you know, we've talked about sleep being two states. You know, you're either awake, conscious, or you're asleep. Well, he's shown that actually after sleep deprivation, bits of the brain can actually fall asleep. So you can have a awake um, animal um, and you'll see bits of the cortex actually showing um, slow wave activity and falling asleep. And so, you know, this is this. So what's the, what what does that mean? I mean, it, it's in a sense, it's almost like um, the brain is able to appreciate how tired it is and then indulge in, in local sleep to try and perhaps, you know, improve that bit of the brain's ability to deal with a wake state. Um, and so I think there's some really exciting stuff that's emerging. And, and, and you, you know, what, what's, what's happened is that we not only understand the physiology, the mechanisms, which is so cool because that's the background I come from, but it's, but it's also it, it, it's why sleep circadian rhythms are so very important across the health spectrum. So finally, we've got the, got the understanding, the fundamental mechanistic understanding, holding hands with the application and why these systems are so important to health and well-being. Yeah. This has been such a fascinating conversation. There's so many more things that I want to chat to you about as well, but I, I realize we've been going for well over an hour here. Um, I mean, in the book, you talk about chronotherapeutics. I think that's a, a fascinating area of research that needs to be you know, taken a lot more seriously within multiple specialties of medicine, you know, when we deliver chemotherapy and so Yeah, I mean, I think that it's so interesting where, where it looks like the circadian clock actually provides a break on cell division. And the clocks, the circadian clocks of cancer cells seem to be turned off. And so that allows this, this, this unregulated cell division. And by putting clocks back into those cells, you can reduce tumor progression. And boy, is that exciting. So if you can turn clocks back on in a cancer cell, you, you can actually have, a, have another way of hitting these horrendous uh, uh, conditions. So that's, you know, one area the, we, we touched on earlier on, our, our attempts to try and mimic the effects of light on the clock to regulate circadian uh, rhythms in individuals with no eyes. Um, and I think that it's all arising from this fundamental understanding of how these systems are generated. And that's, I think it's fascinating that so many of us who, you know, went into science, curiosity-driven science, um, and now see how we can use this new knowledge uh, and apply it 
um, for human uh, therapeutics yeah, and welfare. Absolutely. I, I think on the on the subject of um, health anxiety, particularly when people read and hear about the importance of sleep to all the different elements that we've discussed here, mental well-being, uh, metabolic health. We've spoken on the podcast actually before about um, the timing of food as well and, and how that can impact your propensity towards glucose excursions, etc. cetera. Um, what, what, what would you say are some of the key things that people need to get right without sounding too puritanical about things? People have lots of struggles and sleep, as you've mentioned a number of times here, is a very much a dynamic process. What are the, the key things that you think we should be thinking about, listeners should be thinking about in terms of optimizing or giving ourselves the best chance at having this restorative sleep that is super important for us? It's a really important point because I think so many people feel that the sleep is what you get and they have no control over it. But actually very simple tricks, if you like, um, can improve our sleep. And, and I think we can think about this in four domains. What we do during the day, what we do before bed, what we do in the bedroom, uh, uh, what we could do for the bedroom, and then when we've actually crawled into bed. So during the day, the most important thing for me is getting that, mor that, that morning light exposure, setting the internal clock to the external world. That will stabilize everything, physiology and, of course, the sleep-wake cycle. Napping is often, if people are tired, I mean, the first point to make, if you need a nap, you're not getting enough sleep at night, but let's not be too prescriptive. Um, if you're going to nap, the, and it's been shown that a 20-minute nap, um, but not longer, can actually improve your ability to function during the second half of the day. So the occasional nap is not a problem, uh, but, but you know, make sure it's not, not um, longer than 20 minutes. The, the, the problem with napping, we go back to our teenagers, is that um, the, our teenagers are getting very little sleep at night. They're dragged out of bed by their frustrated parents. Uh, well, not all of them, but some of them. Um, they struggle to school. Some actually, and I've talked to teachers, they're actually falling asleep on the, on the desk at school. They then go home. They're chronically tired, then they'll experience a two-hour nap fairly close to bedtime. That pushes back the sleep pressure, meaning it's more difficult to get to sleep that night. And then you get into a vicious circle of longer naps, shorter nighttime uh, sleep. So be careful about napping. You know, uh, occasional short nap, not, not a problem. Exercise, again, not too close to, uh, to, to bedtime, uh, because that will increase core body temperature. And a drop in core body temperature has been associated um, with, with, with getting to sleep. And we'll, we'll come back to temperature in a moment. We've talked about, we've touched on food intake. Uh, try and concentrate your main food intake morning, lunchtime, rather than lunchtime, evening, um, because of the increased chances of obesity, diabetes too. And the development of conditions such as obstructive sleep apnea, which are common in individuals who have put on weight. And of course, obstructive sleep apnea is when there's a cessation of, of breathing um, during the sleep episode. Uh, essentially, the musculature of, of the throat has collapsed onto the airway and you're, you're suffocating. The brain realizes it's being deprived of oxygen, wakes you up, and then you have these incredible, um, you know, uh, surges in blood pressure, which can actually damage the small blood vessels within the eye. And, and it's a really important condition. Uh, obstructive sleep apnea is associated with coronary heart disease and a whole range of other problems. So, so make sure um, you, you're not eating uh, uh, your main meal of the day uh, only at night. Um, avoid excessive consumption of, of caffeine, for example. 
And there's a, a very interesting cycle that people can get locked into. What caffeine does is really interesting because we talked about sleep pressure. Um, well, it actually blocks the receptors in the brain that are responding to some elements of sleep pressure. So, so this is a very un- interesting understanding of its physiological role. The problem is, of course, if you're fueling the waking day with lots and lots of caffeine, it means you're wired when you need to get to sleep. Um, and so the first point is try not to drink coffee in the afternoon or caffeinated coffee in the afternoon. Um, and if you are drinking coffee throughout the day, then there's a tendency to reverse that stimulation with sedation. And so people will fall into a stimulant sedative feedback loop. And that sedative, the first choice is alcohol. So many people will sedate themselves with alcohol. And it's really important to appreciate that sedatives like alcohol are sedatives. They, they mask some of the important things going on within the brain, such as memory formation and all the rest of it. So really try and avoid that sort of stimulant sedative uh, feedback loop. Really important is after a stressful day, step back, do something which detaches you from the stressful situation. The, the main enemy of sleep is stress. Mo- many people don't have a sleep problem. They have a stress problem, which then prevents them getting the sleep that they're, 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 they're wired to get. So, you know, do step back. Um, before bed, keep the levels of light low because that will increase levels of light. I think it's right, absolutely ironic. What's the last thing that we do before we go to bed? We stand in the most brightly lit room, the bathroom, looking into an illuminated mirror, cleaning our teeth. And, I, and again, maybe one of your listeners have, will actually build the, the ideal bathroom mirror, which will have a switch. There'll be a morning setting with lots of bright light, increasing alertness, and then there'll be an evening setting, which will reduce the, the levels of light while you clean your teeth. We've touched on electronic devices you know, stop using them at least 30 minutes before your desired bedtime because they increase alertness and they reduce um, uh, the chances of getting to sleep. We've talked about avoiding sedatives and prescription drugs. Short-term use, fine, but just be very careful that they don't become the way you try and induce a sleep-wake cycle because they, and particularly in the elderly, and you'll know this, Rupi, you know, with, with, with daytime sleepiness and the chances of falls because of, 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 of sleeping, sleeping issues um, induced by uh, sedatives. Uh, going back, and I think it's worth, worth talking about, and there's the winding down at the end of the day, but it's also before bed is the time that many individuals many couples, um, it's the only time that they have to talk about the important stuff going on. Um, and, and so what you find is that people slide into really stressful conversations. I mean, I remember, you know, um, that my, Lizzie, my wife, we, we, she'd want to discuss family finances, you know, and I'd say, no, this is, no, absolutely not. I, this is too terrifying. I don't want to, you know, we'll, 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 we'll make another time for it. And I think it's true. I mean, I'm sort of, trivializing it a bit but actually if it's stuff that stresses you out don't do it before you uh, go to bed um uh yeah and, and you know immediately before bed you're adopting behaviors that that, that relax you it's sort of the the um the, the book or, or the or the music or whatever activity you, you find relaxing the bedroom itself shouldn't be too warm uh many there's some very dodgy practices in british beds bedrooms with with really overheated bedrooms and of course um it shouldn't be shouldn't be cold but it should be you know um you should be able to lose 
core body temperature um, to a slightly colder environment. Of course, it's difficult to keep it quiet, maybe white noise or, you know, the sound of the sea if, if there's traffic noise or you're in an, a flat with lots of other people around you. Uh, it, it's tricky. Keep it dark, again, particularly if there's light from uh, the window out, outside uh, because light increases alertness. Uh, make the bedroom a place for sleep, a haven for sleep. And again, I appreciate it's difficult, but remove TV, TVs, computers, smartphones, just get them out. This should be this wonderful cocoon uh, 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 of where you go for your glorious sleep. Um, don't clock watch. I think, so we, we've touched on waking up at night and, and many people will wake up. Yep, it's the natural thing. But then they'll look at their illuminated dial and they think, oh, my God, I've only got two hours left. I'm never going to get back to sleep. Uh, and it doesn't matter. Just cover the face of the damn thing up. And, and it's the alarm that, that you're dependent upon, not roughly how many hours or less you've, you've got to sleep before you need to get up. Um, we've touched on sleep apps. Don't take them too seriously. I mean, a bit of fun, but really uh, <clears throat> use them judiciously. In bed. Keep to a routine, both free days and, and work days. Try and keep that structure. And, and of course, it, it refers to other stuff. It's not only when you go to bed and when you get up, but also try and structure mealtimes. That can be useful as well. Um, considering that we spend more than 30% of our time in bed, we're really cheap in terms of um, our, our bedding and our pillows. You know, there's the, I, I don't know what it is that, you know, resentment in spending a lot of money on a mattress or a pillow. Um, but actually, it really helps. And you should get the mattress and the pillows that enhance your sleep. There's some weird stuff going on there. Um, there's, there's, some people use relaxing oils. Now, the evidence that these are actually useful isn't really very robust. Um, it's probably having a placebo effect. But again, it's getting you into that. This is this is the bed. This is the air, the environment. I associate this smell with now it's sleepy time. Um, and incidentally, it can be very useful if you're doing a lot of traveling. You can have, you know, your partner's perfume or aftershave. And, and it can be quite nice because you essentially you then define your space um, as, as the place to sleep. Um, earplugs. Now, this is important. So if your partner snores, it can be, it's one of the major problems and it gets worse as one gets older. And I think you need to take a pragmatic attitude towards it. Uh, if you don't like using earplugs, and many people don't, worth persevering, but many people don't like them, find an alternative sleeping place. It's not a reflection on the nature of your relationship. It just means that one of you is not going to be woken up by snoring and the other is not going to wake up with bruised ribs in the morning because you keep on sort of prodding them. Um, the key, the serious point about, about that, though, is that make sure your partner doesn't have obstructive sleep apnea. And this occurs both in men and women. It's more prevalent in men, but it does occur in women as well. Um, so that's important. Um, now, clearly, economically, one doesn't often have the chance of, of an alternative sleeping space. But if it does, it is an option. And, and it's easier as one gets older, um, the, uh, you know, you're more likely to have, have the space, then it's as, it, go for it. Um, and uh, the final bit, I suppose I'd say is if you wake, stay calm. Uh, we've talked about polyphasic, biphasic sleep, you must almost certainly get back to sleep if you don't let stress, um, social media, uh, and caffeine 
than uh, blocking your ability to get back. Um, uh, but the key point with all of this this rant, I've just it's not really a rant, but all these tips um, is that work out what works best for you, uh, because every everybody's going to be different, and you need to take some ownership mm. of your sleep. And with very simple things, you can actually enhance it uh, enormously. Absolutely, I think those are it's far from a rant. It was f- full of uh, incredible tips there. Um, do, do you use? Um... I mean, for, for, I, I get often asked this question from a food point of view. You know, what does your daily food intake look like? Do you ever eat junk food? Do you ever have cookies? Do you ever all that kind of stuff? With the amount of knowledge that you've accrued over the last few years and the studies that you've done, how do you find your own sleep? Is it is it something that you still struggle with, or have you found your routine? I'm just trying to give the listeners some something. I, I'm unlucky. I get pretty reasonable sleep. Um, I'm a late chronotype. And uh, uh, as one of the great advantages of becoming a full professor is you decide when the meetings will be. Um, and they're damn well not going to be at eight o'clock in the morning. I remember when I worked at Charing Cross Hospital. I mean, God, uh, all of the clinical meetings would be at eight o'clock in the morning. If you're commuting in, it was like getting up and, you know, crack of dawn. And it was hideous. Um, so I, I'm now very lucky because I can decide when the meetings are. And of course, I work primarily with young people who are certainly younger than I am. And they tend to be later types anyway. So we, we, we meetings tend to start at 10. However, of course, we then go on later on in the day. Uh, so so I, I, I've, I've had the luxury, in a sense, to d- define my work schedule and, and what works for me. And that's rare, and I, I appreciate that. So I, I'm lucky in that sense. Um, I do wake up in the middle of the night. Um, I do stay calm. What I occasionally do is put... Um, oh, um, um, you know, radio for extra and listen to a 15 minute, you know, play or something like that, which I find I often don't get to the end of it. So I'll then try and listen back. A good friend of mine does exactly the same thing. And, um, and I hope Melvin Bragg isn't listening. Uh, but she says that Melvin Bragg is the best <laughs> operific on the planet. She said, she's always a sleeper, <laughs> which is a bit mean, but you know, if it works. <laughs> um and um so yeah but i but but the eating i mean that's 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 very tricky for for many of us because uh we live busy lives we have the commute um we have the breakdown of sort of you know the, the all of the the f- family structure and and the and so it's tempting to have the main meal of the day towards bedtime uh, after you get back from work but we have been better by eating much much smaller meals low high protein low carbs in the evening and having making a point of having breakfast and making a point of having lunch and that's that's become more necessary as i've aged um but you know i remember as a student i possibly would skip breakfast and lunch and then you know because i had a great metabolism and i was swimming and doing all that kind of stuff it didn't really matter it does as you age and so you've got to be a bit more sensible about it however having said that our youngest has now moved um back home from australia and she is a wonderful policeman you know and uh, encouraging us to keep our calorie uh, uh load uh <clears throat> lighter uh, in the evenings and she joins us it's great um yeah so so i get 
I get I get between seven and eight hours of sleep a night. Um, I do wake up, but I invariably get back to sleep again. Um, and I try and do the sorts of things that we've talked about. You know, blackout curtains. If there's any street lighting, and there is where I live, um, I try not to use alcohol. You know, late as a sedative. You know, all those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah. That's great. I mean, your your sleep tips are incredible, and I think I really think there is the potential for a brand to become like the um, the Nike of sleep. You know, whether that's mattresses or or something that spills into the digital world or pillows and that kind of stuff. I think that's yeah how we get like mass well, adoption. I think it's really important, and and in fact, because of that, I've agreed to be a consultant on a uh, a mattress manufacturing company. And I did it not just to lend my name to mm. sales, but because they have a whole research unit and they're actually trying to find ways to build better mattresses, whether it's removing heat you know, from the mattress, whether it's enhancing comfort, whether it's enhancing, um, uh, you know, getting rid of, of mm. allergens such as dust mites. So, so I think it, it, there are groups now which are taking this stuff kind of seriously and actually investing in 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 research to, to make the sleeping space yeah. better so i'm i'm very happy to to work with these guys brilliant actually. brilliant well I'll, I'll watch out for that i'll be making a, a purchase maybe christmas time <laughs> for <a> new matches <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. Remember, you can get my guest's book, Lifetime. It's an incredible read and everything to do with circadian rhythm, everything that you'd ever wanted to know about the circadian rhythm. I've also uh, attached some of Russell's lectures that are available on YouTube and I think are wonderful introductions into the concept of circadian rhythm and entrainment as well. And uh, I can't wait to get Professor back on the podcast because there is so much more that we need to discuss all about chronotherapeutics as well as other aspects of rhythm that I I think are absolutely fascinating. So definitely go check out Lifetime, sign up for the newsletter, eat, read, listen uh, at thedoctorskitchen.com, download the app, and I will see you here next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.